the extraordinary belongs to those that create it. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. Can you tell me a little bit about the early days, Alan, prior to age 30? What was young Alan doing? <laughs> well, I guess how early do we want to go? Which version of Alan we're talking about? Because there were many versions of him before this one emerged. Are we talking at school? Teens, I, I've 20s? heard you talk about um, that the age 30 was kind of a pivotal moment for you. Uh, would you consider that to be true? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You could actually group it into sort of decades. Um, the teens, I was very bullied. I was shy. I was nervous. I couldn't talk to strangers. All I wanted was to fit in, and I was a mess. Uh, and that sort of started to change towards the 20s a little bit, and I felt a bit more confident, and I got into sport and doing stuff and... Like, but I was still sort of riddled with neuroses, couldn't find my place in the world. 20s, I just tried different jobs. I did landscaping, I worked in a bar, I did car kids after school clubs, I sold photocopiers, I did telesales. Like, I tried every job you could imagine. And 20s were kind of the lost years, mm -hmm. didn't know what I was doing. And 28, I got fired. Uh, which was a blessing in disguise. At the time, it was very painful, but then you realise later I wouldn't have done what I've done unless someone had given me a shove. Um, and then I started to launch my first business at 28. Uh, and it's probably two years of pain before I worked out how to earn a bit of money. <laughs> and then 30s started to get good. 30s were wonderful. Like, late, late 30s were incredible. And then I'm 42 now. And 40s are like, wow, this is good. Like, I found my place in the world. Life is good. Well, actually, I haven't found my place in the world. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if I don't have a place. I just do what I do. And, yeah, 40s are amazing. So I kind of, like, I think about it of, like, the. I just wanted to fit in. I was lost trying stuff. Oh, I started to find my way and just did what I did. And then things got good. And you kind of that weird progression and I think yeah. well timing yeah. is a an incredibly sort of funny thing when you think about it timing is one of those things with relationships or anything it can be the right person and the wrong time uh, it can be maybe the wrong job but the right time you need that job but um is it was it something in your 20s when you were going through that were those the times where you were starting to pick up these little nuggets of of kind of wisdom that you keep imparting to us all on the podcast <laughs> uh i was on the self-development journey by that stage so that started at 21 and i started really learning and the universe decided it was going to throw me a whole host of huge problems that i needed to deal with and that was massive like dealing with the family breakup the dad debt thing, all of those stories, dealing with all that, I think it felt like never ending issues through my 20s. And at the time, 
I lamented them, I hated them, I didn't want them. But looking back, that pain has made me who I am today and helped me become who I am. And so what happened at 30 was um, you started pop-up business school and things started to come right. But do you think that was more of a change in, in mindset that you just settled down, you started to feel right in your own skin? Or do you think it was more to do with the fact the business was the right business, the right work? Uh, so I guess I don't think there is a right thing. There are many right options. There's no one thing. It just, I, I happened to hit on something that did well. And at times through Rebel Business School's history, it's done very well and then very badly and then very well and the market changes and the government changes its rules and things happen and like I've never had perfect timing actually most of the time I have bad timing but I just get on with it and make it happen and I first went out to launch my first business in 08 right after the financial crisis and it's the worst timing possible no one had money to spend it was in a in a dip, a financial slump, and I had the worst timing possible. And I think the mindset of I'm just going to keep going in this till this works, I'm just going to figure it out. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to get rejected. Things are going to go wrong, but I'm just going to bounce back as much as I can. That mindset, I think, allowed me to go through and test a load of stuff. And the first pop-up business school wasn't until 2012, four years after i started my training businesses and tried lots of other stuff and I did all sorts of weird and wonderful things anything I could to to make money in that interim period um, but that was part of the learning that helped me then get to where I got to. So talk a little bit more about that was it all training based and um, or was there different aspects to it? It was probably mostly different training so when I was at the landscape firm, I managed to persuade the owner, Richard, to send me on a training course. And I actually I sold it like, I'll pay for the course. You just give me the time off. And like, I wanted paid holiday, don't get me wrong, but I wanted the time off to go and do it. So I paid for the course. He did the time off. I learned so much. And that course changed everything for me and I was just so excited to share that I was like this changed my life come on people I'm going to share it everywhere tell everyone uh, and I just want to go out and share it and that was my first business was I wanted to go and do those training courses what I didn't realize was that it was a very flooded market in the area I was going into and I got out there and it seemed there were lots of people doing this it was very hard to sell I hated sales at that stage. People were telling me I had to cold call. And uh, yeah, it ended ended very badly with me trying to make cold calls and trying to force myself through the pain. And it just didn't work. And there was one particular day I ended up sat outside on the wall crying because I couldn't make sales calls. Yeah, um, I can sympathise with that. I can't think it's it's agonising, excruciating at the beginning, particularly. Yeah, you kind of get over it, though. Did you have a similar journey with making sales for your business? Well, um, I have always felt that 
having a warm lead, which is something you often talk about, it's so much easier sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always it, find it ironic that um, I used to try and pitch to jobs and they would practically put the phone down on me. And then three weeks later, someone would call up and it was for the same project and but they were asking me this time and suddenly the the power shift was entirely different and so I knew once I realized that they did want this thing but they just didn't know they wanted this thing Mm. that's when I found that I broke through the the feeling that it was excruciating uh, as you know it, it just changed it all for me but again mindset as opposed to anything actually physical changing uh, I don't think yes. I got better at it necessarily. I just, you know, became you just, more comfortable. I love that because you just realise like people do actually want to buy what you're selling. Yeah. And you might catch them at the wrong time. They might already have a supplier and that's okay. Um, but people do actually want it. You just need to keep going until you find someone with the right time and they want to buy it at the right time. And it's incredible when you have that realisation and then it, just feels a lot more comfortable talking to people. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that um, it's one of those things that uh, it's a familiar thing in nearly every field of work. There are very few businesses, whatever the business is, that doesn't have to go through that in some way or other to pitch to people and to tell people who may not necessarily love what they're they think they don't love what you're offering so (laughs) (laughs) but what about some of the other businesses that you dabbled in uh you were talking about landscape gardening what was there other fields as well I tried I tried so many things I tried recruitment wow um so I was on the phone all day every day trying to get people to switch jobs um I really struggled with that uh, I did two years of telesales selling laptops. Um, I did field sales selling photocopiers. Did kids after school clubs. Yeah. Um, my parents owned a pub, so I was a waiter, a barman, um, all sorts of stuff. I worked in retail selling sportswear and shoes and chasing shoplifters. And like I've tried so many things. So, when I have this random piece of advice of just try stuff, um, I had to try a lot of things. I had to kiss a lot of frogs before I found one I actually liked. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I have. I've had a slightly different journey. With mine has been I've stayed in the same company, but I have changed my role in so many ways. And I think that that's the only way that teaches you really in the end is to reinvent yourself and and have another go. Um, but what st- you started to move towards this FI journey, and mm. what was it that led you down that route? Well, I think from the start, it was watching my family catastrophically melt down over finances, lose everything, lose the family home, and a lot of weirdness over that, and then never wanting that to happen to me or other people again. And that definitely drove me, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to not have that. Um, Then I read 
Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, who I'm not a huge fan of Robert Kiyosaki, but his book is excellent. Yeah. And it said, buy assets. And I was like, I, I, I need to buy an asset. What is an asset? Where can I buy them? And I spent probably two years going, what is an asset? How do I get one? And <laughs> Why are there no was... shops for assets? I know there should be asset shops, shouldn't there? You should walk down the high street <laughs> and next to the supermarket. You should buy an asset shop. Um, and so property was the first version. Then we started to work out about passive income, which like sounds really fancy, but it was like buying a property and getting rent. Uh, and then like eventually Tony Robbins, I became a big fan of his material and he released a book, uh, which no one should ever read. It's too long. It's very complex. Um, but it inspired me to look at index investing. Was which that led to Awaken f- the Giant or? Uh, Money Master the Game. Money Master the Game, yes. Uh, it's 900 pages. It's ridiculously long. And he's written a much better book later called Unshakable that summarizes it in about 300 pages. Yeah, maybe uh, he so- just got a better editor. Yeah, I think he got someone else to write it with him. It was yeah. far better. Uh, Tony, I love your content, but your books in the original days did waffle a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but that then got me onto index investing, and we came up with this target, and we then read about Mr. Money Mustache and JL Collins and read about all these people, and we're like, wow, this is possible. We could do this. Let's just let's crack in and make it happen. And yeah. That's kind of got me on the journey. And thank you to my friend Matt Shreve for sending me Mr. Money Mustache's blog and the Escape Artist's blog and helping us to make progress. Yeah, because, I mean, it's a really big thing finding FI compared to actually progressing along it. I think it's mm. such an appealing idea that lots of people are drawn to it, but whether whether there's actually ever... Uh, movement along that and I think for you there seems like not only did you find FI but you seem to have really you know sort of evangelical about it almost (laughs) we went all in we did go all in yeah Yeah. (laughs) like this idea is great why would you not do this yeah um Katie was not on board to start with it took a while to get her on board and then we were both all in and we're like why would we not do this and it just gives you freedom and lots of the arguments are well I like my job I like my career why would I ever want to find follow financial independence and it's like well you like it now but life changes things change doesn't mean you shouldn't save just because you love what you do and then the other thought that people have is well you know do I really need this is it really important for me to save do I really need to invest like does it matter like, well, yes, look after yourself, buy yourself freedom to do what you want to do. And it's an incredibly powerful tool for creating the life you want to build. And you won't always want to do what you're doing now. And actually, you're more likely to continue doing what you want to do if you're free to do it out of choice, not because you have to do it because you need the money. And did you find that it... it- gave you further purpose within your business because you were going for this goal uh not that you necessarily weren't already getting quite a lot of momentum but it kind of gave you a a 
a point on the map to sort of go towards. It definitely did. It definitely did. So we had massive purpose at Rebel Business School to change the way entrepreneurship is taught, help people free from business plans, build business without debt, huge purpose. And then in my personal life, I was learning about FI. And then I sort of started talking to Simon about it, telling him about it and talking to some other people. And then one day I was like, I'm just going to run a workshop on this. So I ran a workshop in Croydon. We were in the basement of a shop with about 30 people who stayed behind after the event. And I talked about hitting financial independence and the 4% rule. And I put everyone off because they thought it was unachievable. And it was a complete failure of a workshop, but I tried my hardest. And then I went back and helped them afterwards. And then I was like, okay, I'll figure this out. So I spent another six months figuring it out just in my own personal life and then ran a Friday afternoon event at Birmingham, uh, which just seemed to strike people. And actually what I found throughout my life is if I learn for myself and then start to teach others, I get a far deeper learning than I would if I just learned for myself. So the more I share, the more I understand it, the more I understand it, the more progress I make personally. Yeah. Well, it's level of authenticity there, I suppose, as well, that people can, it's tangible, isn't it? When someone's really walked the walk, you you can, you know, you can't help but be impressed and also want to learn from them. So uh, I, I think that though it is, it's quite a hard thing to get across to people when they're not familiar with it perhaps. Mm. Uh, and probably I can see why maybe a group in Croydon may not have got it instantly. <laughs> it <laughs> was my fault. Just I explained Croydon, it badly. I, mean... <laughs> <laughs> I love Croydon. It was nothing to do with Croydon. It was me. I went straight in with all you need is a million pounds invested. And people there were like, what are you talking about? I'm just starting my business. I don't have a job. I have no money. I'm in debt. And it was, I started at the wrong place and I put everyone off. And it was all me doing it wrong. Well, um, sounds like you're being very hard on yourself there, Alan. I don't know if it would have it's been. True. But... It's all true. Um, I've since learned that you can't start with the big goal. You have to start where people are and help them make progress. So if people are in debt, you have to help them out of debt. If people are just starting, you have to help them track their spending or work out their net worth. And then once you've got the basics in place, then you start to believe it's possible. Then you can start to talk about where are we actually going with this. But you just if you jump in with, it's simple, invest a million pounds. People look at you like you're crazy and say that's impossible. And they don't even realise it's actually possible for a lot of people uh, if you just start small. It's one of those things as well that you are, when you're moving, when you bite off too much at, uh, in the with a number it overwhelms and the obvious thing is just like I can't do it I, I'm not going to do it. it's too much so I mean that's the same with dinner if you have too big a plate isn't it so I can with money it's the same it has to be I was just going to say, I made the same mistake when I was younger, when I was in my 20s I'd always set the goal of I'm going to make a hundred grand this year in my business and I never did. And then I felt dejected by about March because I hadn't made any progress. And uh, then I would give up and just like it would take a long time to bounce back with the energy. And I think mm. I would always set these big grand goals 
never achieve them and feel disheartened. Whereas actually what I should have done is just focus on, I'm just going to like work on selling stuff. I'm just going to work on growing my business. I'm just going to have fun and do my daily stuff. And actually the profit is a side effect of doing daily sales activity, of helping customers, of giving value. And I focused on the, yeah, I was focusing on the goal, which is actually the side effect rather than focusing on the activities that lead to the side effect. Did that make any kind yeah, of sense? Yeah, it did. Lucy? That did make plenty of sense. And actually, you have to be really careful with what goals you set, because as you say, they can actually knock your confidence Put you off. to such an extent that you feel like, what's the point? Why um, am I doing this? Exactly. And so was um, was the was the pop-up business school ready for you to want financial independence at that stage as in sometimes your your business isn't mature enough to be able to maybe <laughs> sort of help you fast enough to get on that independent financial independence path you you want to start drawing more money so that you can invest more money but actually the business needs the money to grow uh, especially when you're in that interim stage was it what stage were you at when it uh, that's what I'm trying to ask what stage was it at when you kind of found in financial independence so we I properly learned about it late 2014 2015 so I've been running like I started in 08 and I've been running pop-up since 12 so it was a good two or three years into the pop-up rebel business school and it was making some money and doing some stuff and I had some cash to invest and I'd made some progress. So I was at least on the path and doing quite well by that stage. Uh, I think Katie also, when we found out about it, she made a huge jump to give up her secure corporate career and go contracting. And it was a big risk because she had a three month notice period but the contracts, they wanted people almost instantly. So she had to quit without knowing she had anything to go to. And right. it felt like a big risk. It wasn't in essence because we built up a bunch of savings or as JL Collins likes to say, FU money in the bank so that we could make that jump. And she jumped. My business was taking off. She tripled her salary. My business was growing. And all of a sudden we had massive income and I think one of the mistakes with getting your finances in order is people focus so much on saving the pennies and not enough on increasing their income and actually the one of the biggest levers you've got is increasing your income and that's what we did and wow it made a huge difference but it's it's less of a risk to the soul to cut your pennies <laughs> you know you really are putting yourself out there by creating another business or going all in on the existing one that you have and I think that the cutting and and making sure that you're not wasting anything which is absolutely part of the whole mm. overall uh, progress that you're going to make but it also is an easier thing in some ways to do because it's just hard to put yourself out there. And in business, you're putting yourself out there all the time. You really are. 
you really are and you're right I d- I've never heard it say that way easier to risk your soul um yeah because <laughs> you're kind of putting yourself out there in a raw way going this is me do you want me yeah uh and then yeah it's painful when it goes wrong it is it is but I do think you get used to that over the years mm. and I'm 42 now and rejection is way easier now because I care less I've got a lovely wife. I have a nice life. If you don't want to work with me, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think when I was younger, I didn't have a nice wife. I didn't have a nice life and I was just desperate for acceptance. So when I didn't get acceptance, it hurt a huge amount. So I do do think that changes over the years, depending on where you are and what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm 45, so a little bit older than you, but uh, I have exactly, I I don't know, maybe it's in the 40s that you become a bit ballsier and you're sort of like, (laughs) you know, now I, I, you know, if people, as you say, don't want to work, not necessarily with me, but certainly they, you know, there's a lot of haggling about terms and things Mm. like that. And I'm just like, actually, if you, you don't go into a shop and say, I'm not going to pay for this now, I'm going to pay for it in 100 days. And things like that, I'm much more prepared to say, I don't want to work with you. Whereas before <laughs> I'd be kind of thinking, I really do want to work with you. Please. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you want to pay me, whenever, I'll work with you. Whereas now I'm just a bit like, no, it's okay. Uh, I'll miss this one. Go again later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Which does come from experience. It comes from having some reserves it yeah. does change over the years. So if you're listening to this and you've just started your business, oh, it's like, such a hard you'll thing get to do. there. Yeah. It's tough. You'll get there. We we both promise you mm. we'll get, you'll get there. Just keep going. It'll be okay. Just keep working on it. But it is tough to start with. And the rejection the first few times is going to hurt. And then you'll get used to it. And then you'll actually appreciate it. Because if someone rejects you, that's actually quite good sometimes because that project might have been a nightmare for you. So tell me how you went from following your own financial independence path to kind of becoming friends with the kind of superstars of the financial independence movement. Because I get the sense that, you know, you, you're rubbing shoulders with them all the time. You're like, they're best mates, every one of them. <laughs> They're lovely. They're all lovely. And well, really all I did was Katie Katie's the thing. She she found this event called Chautauqua where they some of the bigger people in FI world go. And she was like, Do you want to go to this? And I don't know if you know this about me, but I love self-development courses. I love learning. And she's like, Do you want to go? Mr. Money Mustache will be there. JL Collins will be there. And at the time I was like, who's JL Collins? Um, and the mad scientist. And I'm like, who are these people? I've heard of Mr. Money Mustache, but that's it. And she said, do you want to go? I was like, yes. She said, it's in Ecuador. It's a week long. I was like, it's perfect. So we booked, which for the people listening to it from America, it's less exotic. But for us British people, Ecuador is a long way off. No one goes to Ecuador from England. We go to Spain or Greece. Um, And we just booked. We went. uh, We just, I learnt. I loved learning. I loved soaking it up. And about halfway through the week, some of the participants were like, Alan, your business sounds really interesting. Why don't you do a talk? So I said, 
yeah, to the person running it, is it okay if this this night's free? Is it all right if I do my talk on five ways to build a business with no money? And I did my talk and it was really cool. Pete really enjoyed it, Mr. Money Mustache. And I got chatting to them all and I ended up being on the Mad Scientist podcast. And then we're just like, I keep making up ways to work with these people because I think this is the bit. I like having inspirational people who do stuff in my life. So I come up with ways I can do things with them. And quite often they don't make me any money, but that's okay. I just want to do cool stuff. So I was like, we could do a podcast together, or here's a bunch of ideas, or what do you think about this? Or I'd just turn up in Longmont and say hello, or, you know, you just, you kind of just make it happen. And that's, that's been my thing is I want to have incredible people who do stuff in my life. So if I find them, I make up ways to go and see them and do stuff together and invent things. Brilliant. Well, I think that uh, from, from the sound of it, brick by brick, you have built a huge network. I, I mean, abroad, actually, maybe more, maybe because it's a bigger thing in America than over here. We just kind of make friends with people. So I made friends with the escape artist, who's one of the UK bloggers. It's a very interesting blog. Yeah. Uh, his name's Barney. And actually how we did it was he had on his site uh, a coaching. So Katie and I paid to go to the escape artist for coaching. And we paid to go to the Chautauqua event. And we paid to do things. So we become supporters of what people do. And I genuinely am because I love their content. So I buy their books, go on their courses, listen to their stuff. And I'm a genuine believer and fan. So I think like we built this network by learning, paying, going, being part. Um, I've never scrimped. And I think one of the things I don't like about the FI world is that People think everything should be free. And J.L. Collins has spent 30 years learning investing. Buy his book. Mm. It's like £10 or whatever. Like, it is free on his blog. But buy his book, it's okay. It's okay for him to charge for some of his knowledge. It's okay to charge for courses. Like, you're giving huge value. Uh, and not everything has to be free. It's, it's okay to pay for stuff. Mm. But that's why it's great to have things like a book and a course. People can pay for their what they can afford at that moment in their lives or what they can have access to. You know, I, I mean, podcasting aside, which we give an awful lot of uh, knowledge and value, hopefully, uh, away for free. But there is that that like and trust aspect to it. When I'm looking for my next book, why would I not look to J.L. Collins or some someone else who I am listening to regularly and hope that I can pay it back in some way? It's human nature to want to scratch each other's backs, isn't it? <laughs> so. so let's move across to your sort of development. It's obviously a big part of your life, self-development and um the people in your life are obviously a big source of inspiration. But what are the routines? What are the habits that you have developed or come to realise add real value to your life? So I guess the things that 
add huge value to my life are the journaling, which I have a slightly different way of doing it. I ask myself questions and I have a monthly version and a yearly version. And I ask myself a bunch of questions like, am I happy in these areas of life? Relationships, finances, business, et cetera, et cetera, fun, recreation, environment. And I look down and go, am I happy? Am I enjoying it? What's going well? What's going badly? And then if I keep going like this, am I happy with the destination? Which I think is the key question, because if you're not, you change it very quickly. Um, if you are happy with the destination, then you plough in harder. So I think that sort of reflection, thinking, really deep thinking and writing down the thoughts has helped me to decide what I actually want in my life, which is the hardest part on getting going and building a life you want, is deciding what you want it to look like. So I come up with a bunch of goals, I come up with a bunch of ideas, and then I make some stuff happen. Some of them stick, and I stick with it, and some of them don't, and I ditch them quickly and pretend they didn't happen, and that's okay. Uh, if you've committed to do something, it's okay to say, I don't want to do it anymore and change, but society says you shouldn't. You should commit and stick to it, but it's okay to change. So I think like, the monthly and yearly reflection makes a huge difference. Um, then I take those things that I come up with and I set a project list and I break it down and do stuff every day. Um, I come up with a huge amount of ideas and just focus on making it happen. And then I guess the final bit is really when I worked out the key to making things happen is to put dates in diaries. It's boring, I... but it's so useful. <laughs> and it really is. <laughs> Uh, that alarm that I've discovered on my phone that just, you know, I missed so many things before I learned to write things in <laughs> diaries and set alarms. Gosh. And the only reason we're here today is because we set a time and yep. a date and it came around and we both turned up and we both did it and we'll create something that goes out in the podcast and has fun and like set dates with people, tie them down. Never leave the last meeting without the next meeting being set up. Always make sure you've got the next thing ready to go. And if you do that, you'll constantly move things on. So I think that magic that happens at the end. You're right, it sounds boring. Put it in the diary. What kind of advice is that, Alan? But people don't do it. But the thing is that then you, you can get to a point where you actually have to diarise things like thinking, <laughs> which is, is utterly ridiculous. But actually, life can get so busy and so hectic that all you're doing is pacing through mm -hmm. and onto the next appointment, meeting, thing you set up three months ago. And actually, you have to make sure that you have time to process it or journal it or, and really dig into the value of it, because otherwise, suddenly life sweeps you along uh, very easily. <laughs> How do you do you schedule in your thinking? I mean, I do. Every month I have monthly reflection in my diary. I start the mornings with a bit of journaling, like I schedule these things in. Is that what you do, Lucy? Do you think about those I, things I, like that? I 
what happens is I schedule it in and then something happens. And I can guarantee <laughs> nine times out of 10, some, I don't know, a child is ill, uh, the, one of my staff have a problem on the job and I have to go and intervene. So I found that that doesn't work brilliantly because the problem with thinking is it's never important enough to not put a fire out in some direction. So I tend to try to arrive at places and take appointments and I add a a buffer time where Mm. I try to I my aim is obviously you know at the worst case scenario is to get there on time but if I've actually (laughs) you know done the thing properly I should have 20 minutes which I can think I can't journal but I try not to put a podcast on I try not to do things of that ilk that might just distract me, but actually think over things. And those little pockets of time might only be, you know, a half dozen in a week, but actually I'm much safer because I can't be called away because I'm just about to do X. And I find that they get encroached upon less. So that's that's kind of the way my mad world works. <laughs> I love that idea. So two things you've said have really struck me. One is worst worst case scenario, I turn up on time. Yeah. I think most people's worst case scenario is they're late. Uh, You've managed to set it up that your worst case scenario is life is all good. And I think that is phenomenal um, because just turning up to a meeting on time seems to be a rare skill nowadays. Uh, And the second thing about the thinking I genuinely believe there is a deficit of thinking in the world because we are so busy. We have Netflix on in the background. We're doing stuff. There's kids, there's business. We're putting out fires and thinking doesn't happen. And thinking is what builds your life. I genuinely believe there's a deficit of it. And I'm always always surprised when I do my thinking and I write down my ideas and I send them to people and I share my thinking they always look at it and go wow I love it when I get these type of emails with ideas and thinking and thoughts and I'm just like this is what helps me sane like I need to think to know where my life is heading and what's happening and yeah equally I think it was essentialism uh the book which was written and the author's name escapes me. Uh, But uh, that was a book that was very formative for me is it made me realise that I had a lot of superfluous things in my life that I could edit. And but instead of plugging those gaps with other things is to just spend a little bit more time uh, going over what else other things that might have been in my own head and that was a really books are wonderful things but he you know (laughs) there are one or two which you come across in your life that actually hit you at the right moment and square between the eyes and that for me that was a good one um I was going to ask you about whether those questions that you go back to with your journaling how hard they are for you to, I, I mean, they almost seem like real feet in the fire kind of questions. I'm not sure I could, I could <laughs> make myself do that every six months. It sounds torturous. 
They're interesting questions, and they do change the way you think about life. And I mean, I've become a collector of questions because questions are get you to focus. I mean, let me give you an example of some, and you can tell me what you think of them. But I have, uh, what are you most proud of this year? What have you created? What have you brought into life? What have you done, experienced? What are you most proud of? And that's an interesting one to start thinking about that because then you can go, I'm proud of this. That probably means I should build on it more. Um, I have, what event or experience represent the worst of the year and why it was so bad? But that's not a great question that's to think not. through. I think um, I'd need a drink to go alongside <laughs> that. If I, you know, if you had a nice stiff brandy at your disposal while you asked that, to just anaesthetise the pain. Oh, but it's so important. Like people don't think about. Like it's almost as if we the bad thing happens, we get over it and we run away from it. Whereas actually, there is learning to be had in everything that's gone wrong. So if we can just take the time to reflect back and go, what's the lesson? What do I need to learn? And what can I apply going forwards? You can gradually start to avoid these bad things happening. And the less those bad things happen, the more you have time for the good stuff. And I think just taking the time to do it, it it's not always comfortable looking at where you've made mistakes and what's gone wrong, but boy, does it make a difference yeah I think that uh you're when you're reviewing and it was something that my field of work is uh, a profession that has to do continued professional development and one of the parts of it is you need to produce kind of reflective documents about your projects mm. uh, and to you know to improve going forward and that was one of the things that really I took from the the process more than anything else. I liked doing the reflection so much. It never really occurred to me to be reflective in, previously. And then suddenly that exercise of someone else making me do it, actually I thought, hmm, there's some real value in that. But, and I don't know, it's, it's a difficult thing to do if you haven't come across it. It, it, was, it was a real like, wow, this is a new concept for me when I came to it um it wasn't something taught in school or familiar from my parents generation yeah I never I learned it from books and courses and people said you had to journal and you have to reflect and you have to do this and I was like what is this I don't want to write stuff what are you talking about stop making me write things can't I just go and watch television um but then I started to do it and then I got addicted to it and now if I don't have the space to think I feel out of control. So uh, I've heard you say on the podcast that you have um, you have to fight yourself from picking up new opportunities these days. Fight <laughs> your inner <laughs> desire to sort of uh, start new things. Is is that a real struggle for you? Yes. Yeah. Like there's so many ideas. There's so much cool stuff to do. There's more to do than can ever be done. And to give you an example, I'm in uh, Bogota, Colombia at the moment, helping set up the Rebel Business School here and hanging out with the team. And they took me to play a Colombian sport called Tejo. Have you ever heard of Tejo? No. 
Definitely not. So imagine, like, I don't know, a five, six meter uh, pitch. And at one end, there's a, a giant board filled with clay. And in the middle, there's a circle, metal circle. And they put small triangles on the four points of the circle uh, filled with gunpowder. And then you stand at the other end of the pitch and hurl a metal hockey puck at this thing, trying to hit the metal thing and make the gunpowder explode. Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Why, what else would you be doing on a Friday night? Um, and you have to get it. If you get it in the middle of the circle, you get bigger points. If you hit one of the triangles and it explodes, you get bigger points. Or if no one hits it, the closest to it. And the puck like embeds in the clay. And I played this game and it was outrageous. It's daft. Like you're throwing a metty, metal hockey puck at gunpowder. Like it's going to be fun. Um, and I That's thought to myself, such a boy thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely filled with both sexes, equally enjoying it. Um, I'm not saying just you know from the description. Let's mm -hmm. blow things up. While let's we blow throw things up. Things, you know, <laughs> uh, and we were having great fun. Everyone was cheering, and I thought to myself, "This this should come to England. This would be huge." I can imagine English people with a pint of beer throwing metal hockey pucks at gunpowder. They no, love because it. there would be nine thousand risk assessments done <laughs> to prevent you. You would have two meter barriers <laughs> around the, you know, the the clay panel at the end. Um, but yes, it does sound great fun. <laughs> and I was thinking I should bring this to England. I should find someone to take this idea. We should launch it. Like this would be great post-pandemic where people are wanting to get out more and experience more uh, it could be done outdoors in the summer like this is a great idea i should do it and i have to resist the temptation to prophesize about this business and start building it because i've got enough to do i've got more to be done than can ever be done so is the is the aim uh, a pop-up business school in every city in the world no no, the aim is to change the way entrepreneurship is taught and help people build businesses without debt. And I don't really care how we do that. Okay. I think there's got to be an element of we've got to make some money because we have a team uh, who have mortgages and lives and food. And you have to make money to be able to do that. And actually, the more money we make, the more good we can do in the world. And that's definitely become a thing for me is like, let's do more good. Let's Let's do more, create more opportunity, make more money, because then we can do more good. And I think if I can do that, if I can change the way entrepreneurship is taught, if I can change the way finance is taught, if I can help people create extraordinary lives, I get rewarded because people send me messages and say, you've changed my life. And it just warms my heart and makes me want to do it more. And so there's no borders to that idea there's no, there's no place too far. Well, I'm in Colombia. There is yeah. no place too far. Uh, it, it, like, it just, yeah, I think I don't like to live in a life of restrictions, Lucy, and I get the feeling you don't either. I don't like to live in a world where people say, me, you can't do that, you can't do this. I like to live in a world of possibility where we can do anything if we put our mind to it. 
And that, for me, is the world I want to live in. And so what do your days look like these days? Are you, <laughs> are you, uh, are you apart from throwing, obviously, clay pots at, <laughs> at explosives, I mean, are they, are they jam-packed? Are you working as, as hard and fast as ever? Or have, have, have you slowed down a bit? I have mixed feelings about mornings at the moment because I like to get up and do stuff, but I don't like to have an alarm and I like to lie in bed hugging Katie. Uh, so I have mixed feelings because I have such a drive to do stuff, make things happen. Um, but normal day is we wake up together. Uh, we normally go out for a fancy breakfast. I love breakfast. It's my favourite meal of the day. A nice coffee, a nice breakfast. We talk about our projects, our life, where we're going. Katie's got into calisthenics training, so she goes off to the park and does pull-ups and chin-ups and stuff like that. And I record some podcasts. And then I talk to Simon, or we do a few meetings, or I write some stuff about work on TV shows. And Katie comes back and go out for a long walk in the afternoon and... I feel like I'm having more time for fun, but I'm more productive as well. And I'm getting better at being productive and producing. And like you probably heard the whole, there was a whole series on getting things done on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and the better I get at that, the more I am productive and the more fun, the more space I have for fun at the same time quite interested in whether you think there's a such a thing as balance because I've never found it it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't exist in my world it's much more about tilting into things and out of things but I, I'm fascinated to know whether it's, it's it's a belief of yours that you can have balance in your work and life no I think you go in phases I've never really found, like, I am balanced and perfectly centred and yeah. I will remain that way. I overextend myself and I push through and then I go, oh, I've done too much, I need a break. And then I go back the other way and I have, like, a period of I don't do anything and I have some time. And I think, actually, progress is made at the extremes, not in the middle, in the balanced bit. So sometimes you go crazy and you do a load and then you need a break and it goes in cycles. And I've yet to find someone that has found perfect balance of working two hours a day, being with their family two hours a day, working out 30 minutes a day. I've yet to find someone who can do that. Oh, I good. Think it's, yeah. <laughs> Not just me then. I was thinking maybe there were people out there in the world that, <laughs> you know, uh, could could sort of wander through their work life blissfully and have the perfect and have a tidy house. I really would, I take, <laughs> take offence at those people. <laughs> well, I think it's always a choice of prioritisation because you come down to it and you go, OK, I've got two hours this afternoon. I could exercise I could tidy my house, I could do something on my business or I could spend my time with my kids. You cannot do them all. Uh, and you make a choice and you do what you do and then the next day you make a different choice because the house is even more of a mess. And you're like, I must get it done now. Um, and I think, yeah, like we always aim for balance and having a balanced life, but th life comes along and throws you out of balance and you win a big project and then you go crazy on that for a while. And then you chill out. And I think 
that will never exist. And we just need to relax, accept balance doesn't exist, stop striving for it and just enjoy what is. That was a very nice answer. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so Lucy, tell us about your business. What do you do? What is this niche business that you have? Ah, so I am in the kind of work that when people ask you what it is, they've got no idea what you do. <laughs> um, I am a sculptural and architectural features specialist and I work in conservation, which means that I spend my life preserving the most beautiful um, historic monuments. So if you've ever been around London, I look after Eros and me and my team, we look after... Um, uh, Nelson's Column and wow. uh, the Albert Memorial and any any monument you might see. Uh, I, we specialise in bronze and um, we look after lots of fabulous historic buildings as well, which also have equally beautiful things in them uh, and features. And, um, you know, we're, we're super lucky, but it's uh, it's a kind of field that a little bit like yours, Alan, in some ways, where there is an ethical dilemma within the the work that you do, because some people would say, well, how on earth can you profit out of something that is so significant and historically important? Uh, we've just been asked to look at um, the Kinder Transport um, Memorial out in, outside Liverpool Street Station, which obviously incredibly important monument for the Jewish community. And yet, you know, my my lights will be on in my house because of the work that I do on that. And yet there is, I think, scope to do good and to profit um, for, for yourself and your people. And, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of work that does pull you along because it's so interesting. What an incredible business. Um, how did you get into that? Yeah. I have to ask before we wrap up, how, how do you get into maintaining bronze? So I was incredibly lucky and my father was a restorer. My mother was a sculptress. So for me, it was incredibly normal to spend my life talking about <laughs> bronze. What do you mean you don't talk about bronze at dinner? Of course you do. So normal. What, what do you mean you talk about politics? Um, so that was um, the background, but I, I had... Um, I didn't know I was definitely going to go into it, but uh, it was def it was my path. And uh, quite early on in my you know my teens, I started thinking, yeah, I I could you know I I could fit in with that if I can you know work with my father, which is not an easy thing, a family business. <laughs> um, and uh, we did have our ups and downs, but it, I learned mm -hmm. a huge amount from him. So and uh, and I tried to change the business from what it what he created and make it my own um and and lots of the things you talk about on the podcast are exactly what you have to do to even take a very an existing business and grow it uh it doesn't have to be a new business uh it can be something that is already got a profile and you have to do all these things to to make sure that you're still here in 50 years, you know, to pass it on to my children <laughs> who don't want to do it. 
So where do people find out more about your business, Lucy? Let's just say we had a couple of people who have massive bronze statues in their garden. Uh, how would they find out more about you? Uh, so my company is Antique Bronze. So if anyone pops that into Google, we should be right up there at the top of the pages, but www.antiquebronze.co.uk. And... Um, if you type my name in, Lucy Branch, you should also find me. I do lots of different things. I am also a writer and I write novels about the, the dark side of the art world, actually. Um, so, and these are the kind of side hustles and extra things that, you know, you need to keep putting spice into your work and your life. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Definitely. Lucy, thank you for taking over the podcast and giving us so much energy. We really appreciate it. Do you have a closing message for the audience, a thought, an idea? I was just going to really come back to one of the thoughts that you had, Alan, when you were talking about how important self-development has been on the journey. You didn't say the most important thing has been money to become financially independent. You didn't say the most important thing was finding my my groove. You talked about self-development and how valuable it's been to you all the way along the track and still is. And I think that actually that's the place where most of us can improve and most of us can find something that we can hold on to and take ourselves further with our businesses. I love that idea. And if I could just build on it for one second at the end, my thought would be for everyone listening, if you have something you're wanting to achieve, a business you want to build, a thing you're aiming for, the question I would ask below that is, who do I have to become to do this? And if you can answer that question and then start working on those skills, it's incredible how much progress you will make. So if your goal is to build a big business and you go, well, actually, who do I have to become? I have to become a good marketeer. Well, I'm going to start reading and learning about marketing. Actually, if I want to lead my business and I want to grow it and hand it over, I need to become a better leader. Well, I'm going to read. Who do I need to become? I need to become a really good leader. Well, I'm going to learn the skills to do that. I think that thought process right at the end is what I would love people to take away from this episode is what do you want to achieve? Who do you have to become to do it? And then just start learning because none of us are born with these skills. Thank you for listening yes. to The Rebel Entrepreneur. Lucy, thank you for taking over the show and for listening. You've been fabulous. Thank you. You're very welcome. Enjoyed it thoroughly. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a Rebel Entrepreneur.